Good morning, good afternoon, good night. It's Xavi. If you know me, I'm happy you're here. If you don't, I converted a moving truck into a tiny home amidst the pandemic, gave up my place, and hit the road. Starting in Vancouver, I drove to Miami and realized that there was too much adventure not to share. So to fill you in on my journey, the Play On Foundation presents the Two Degrees Podcast. Why two degrees? Because I'm now a snowbird and escaping two degree weather. I built the truck wrong and the majority of the weight is on the passenger side, so we're tilted at two degrees. But also, I'm going to catch up with industry professionals who I'm glad to call friends and bring you two degrees of separation away from them and what they do. So, welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Playon Foundation for Neurological Research and Brain Aneurysm Detection and Prevention. To learn more about the Playon Foundation, check out www.letsplayon.org. But for now, enjoy the show. But first, a quick word. Do you like mangoes? <laughs> of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees Podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit, illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. Is it me or is it you? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. I can hear you now. Sweet. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't have my ears in. I, I just had them sitting in front of me and then I was like, why can't I hear her? <laughs> oh, yeah. Headphones. Gotcha. Hi. How How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing amazing, and I'm so happy that you said yes to this and that you're able to lend me your time. So uh, let's dive in. Should I get my headphones? Will that make the sound better? Uh, you sound great on my end. Okay, perfect. Well, that's yeah. great then. Cool, cool. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Today's guest, I am so thrilled to bring to you because amongst all of the artists that I've had on the show so far, as incredible as they all are in their own right, the thing that sets this guest apart is her theater company. She's just as amazing and she's just as skilled of an artist as everybody else. But the fact that she has a theater company still blows me out of the water. But everybody, it's Ruth Goodwin. Hello. Good, morning. Good afternoon, actually. How How is the day so far? Day so far is full of grant applications and frustration. But I am thrilled to take a break from that and be talking to you. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much. Um, Oh, I've tried to delve into that world. I guess let's start there. Where did you start um, or where did you learn grant writing? Oh my gosh. Um, I have no idea. I just sort of went for it. I, no, that's not true. When I started applying for grants, 
Um, a few people I had, that had told me, a few people with experience I had just like reached out to, they were like the grant writing process specifically, you know, often generally, but like in Canada, you know, we're really asking from three granting bodies The, you know, you're asking for um, uh, provincial, federal and municipal funding and the grants are really they're all looking for a formula that is, um, once you can kind of crack it, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily guaranteed to get that grant, but there is, um, you, you do have to like kind of, I don't know, go along with this formula. And it unfortunately is, it's a very long and arduous um, sort of, uh, monotonous task but I, I so I started just asking some um friends of mine and the main thing that everyone was saying um <clears throat> uh and actually the granting officers as well um will talk to you on the phone and they'll like guide you through your grants so they were everyone's sort of the number one tip that I would have or that I was given was that um you you want your grant to really tell a story. Like you, you can't just sort of ask for something and you, you really need to answer the who, what, where, why now, why this money, how much are you gonna, you really have to be employing your artists at a union rate. And, you know, there's certain things you just have to just narratively um, communicate to the granting bodies. So that's, while also sort of, you know, repeating yourself a lot because a lot of the questions are very repetitive Fair. So, yeah. now with that though so what was that learning process like um so you'd submit grants and then i guess when you get a no what could you take from those no's and then apply it to your next grants well actually we've had one of the great things about the Canada Council right now and, and different granting bodies at different times, obviously, depending on the political party in power, um, but sometimes they're more, more money for the arts, obviously. Um, and then, you know, also in tandem with being more money for the arts, sometimes there's more help on the actual council side, to actually, you know, guide you through the process. Um, so one of the notes we got, I actually was very lucky. My first grant I got awarded and I was, um, uh, but it, it was for a really strong show that had, that really should have been staged. So that, um, you know, whether it was my grant writing or it was the show and the people involved and the artists involved, I don't know. Um, but we, we have had many no's, <laughs> many, many, many no's. Um, and a couple of things I've taken away from them. One time we were trying to do a show that would have been a profit share for the artists. So they wouldn't have been paid equity rates up front. And um, we would have shared the profits of the uh, ticket sales. And we were denied that grant. And we, when we went back to them, and this was earlier in our uh, like my theater company, the Howling Company has been around for eight years now, but this was early days. And they said like, you didn't get the grant because you weren't paying your artists enough. And now oh. we were the artists, <laughs> like it was also us. <laughs> so we, 
we but we took from that like we we certainly weren't finding other artists to exploit we were exploiting ourselves but um that was a really quick lesson of like no like we need to you need to advocate for yourself and um you know in spirit but also in practice like you won't be you're not eligible for funding if you're not paying artists a living wage and if you are those artists then you are those artists but um so that was one and actually we just had a grant come through oh my gosh I'm such a grant nerd today <laughs> but we just had we just had a grant come through that we were this is the second time this has happened but um you can be denied a grant and then you know a year later once they've handed out and awarded all the money there might be um leftover money or um a company may have turned down a grant because it conflicted with maybe another grant they had so we just got a little grant that we had already been um rejected from and so with that my lesson is just friggin apply because you never know you might get a no and then maybe at the end of the line there's um, more money than they thought um, or more money is pumped. I don't know. In this case, it might be more money has been pumped into theater because of how decimating the last two years for theater has been. I don't know, but we got this yeah. grant and we're very excited. It was a surprise. That is fascinating. I, I had no idea that that was like, that people would turn down grants as well. So that's, that's, interesting to, to know because that's definitely been a world that I've wanted to delve into but I'm just daunted by the task itself yeah. um or maybe I'm also just not willing to add more rejection on my plate <laughs> that's that's fair too um but the t the task itself is very daunting but I would suggest to anyone that wants to write grants like just call the granting body and just ask the stupidest questions because I did and like oftentimes I would be like what so what is the difference between this word salad of a question and the one before it and the they would be like I mean honestly they're not that different <laughs> so just keep just keep writing like just yeah. really um keep putting them out there but uh yeah it's it's a weird one it's it's fascinating how you phrase it too where it's like you have to tell them a story and i never thought of it in that perspective yeah. where it's like okay cool i write scripts i write i write little you know excerpts here and there but then when i think grant writing i think of english class and all the errors that would get marked down so it's like how do you balance it from storytelling to being grammatically correct? I think you, and listen, I have dyslexia and I have ADHD. So I know all about grammatically incorrect and spelling <laughs> mistakes and like the world I live in. Um, but I think like it just becomes um, the the thing is your project and the people you're working with, like there needs to be within you that, that urgency for this to be made. 
Um, you know, it's not a place for, oh, like this would be kind of cool, baby. It's a place for like, I think these artists need to be seen. I think this story needs to be told. I think that this will improve um, Toronto or Ontario or Canada in this way. And, yeah. um, and I, for the grants that I write, like, and I don't write grants for other people or for other theater companies because I just don't have the, the passion for, like, if I have a project and I really, really, really need money to make it to employ the fantastic artists I think should be in this project. Um, then I think urgency and narrative a little bit. Mm. Yeah, so I think that that helps for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I think I think you you've ignited reignited my my. I wouldn't say it's a passion yet, but um, the task of needing to dive into that. And even like questions about like marketing and like who's for like that's all you know as artists we it, it really also forces you to examine and really articulate why you want to make something you yeah. know and who it is for and like they sound sort of like dull business questions but they're not it, they're yeah. asking you why should this be on stage now or why should this be a film now <clears throat> who's going to see this how are you going to reach those people and it's yeah i think it's uh at the end of the day I love grants, but today, listen, <laughs> I do not. <laughs> that. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, you brought up an uh, interesting point that I kind of want to also now explore, where you talk about being artists and that phase where it's like you, you do it for free. Um, so money really isn't the, the main drive to pursuing it what's then your opinion on when an artist like I, I personally feel like an artist shouldn't stop doing free work but there is the reality of in order to maintain this level of service that we're providing we need to get paid so that everybody else that's starting off they then will also get the opportunity to get paid and stop having to do free work because like it's it's true it's like if it's a passion project and you know it's not about the money for you the reality is if you take that job and opt not to get paid it kind of is detrimental to the up-and-coming artists that are trying to get paid work so then what's the transitional point then for an artist for them to buckle down and say, no, I'm only going to do paid work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, it's, it isn't always, that answer is always in flux. Um, because sometimes if I've had a great year and I've done some TV and some films, I'll do more free work because I have the income to do it. And I either will help a friend with a, you know, a short film or I'll, you know, um, or I'll do a reading for somebody that I really think would be 
amazing to work with. Um, but, you know, I guess let me rephrase, let me rephrase that question because you said if you've had a good year, um, so excluding that aspect of having that good year where, because like, yes, if you've had a great year and I, I second that notion of like, you know, stop being greedy and you know dive into something that can help somebody else and, and not making about money. But then when it, when it's, you're starting off and you're doing all free work because you need a demo reel, you need more experience, you need to build connections in that part of everybody's acting journey. When then would you say you have to stop that until yeah. you get to a point that you're on a TV show and then you can do it again. That is tough. That it's, that's a tough one. Cause I, mm. I believe so wholeheartedly in that acting is a practice. So stopping anything in protest of um, not being paid is if, if you, if you haven't reached a point of your career that you, um, can do that with comfort. Hmm. Um, I, then that, that question becomes more for me, how long do you want to stay in the industry? And, and I only mean that, and listen, I've been through that question time and time again myself. And I did not have uh, an easy start. I was not someone who booked right out of school. I was not someone who booked five years after that either. Um, but I, uh, certainly not on a consistent basis. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, within that time I built my theater company. I, I did a lot of my own work and then my own work, which I did do largely for free eventually, um, you know, landed me, you know, I, I was starring in a show that my theater company produced and I, the casting director for a TV show came to see it. And that was my first, um, I booked that show and was on it for four years. And that was my first big show. So that all came from my, that sort of entrepreneurial artist and making your own work, which, you know, came in large part from my unpaid hours and subsidized by Joe Jobs. But, it, you know, because for me, like I like to improvise, I like to write, I like to act. I don't always, you know, during the pandemic, you can't really do any of that on your own. So, you know, for me, like I'll do an improv show. I, I would, if, if I wasn't where I am in my career, I would still, I would have either left this career or I would still be doing improv for free community theater, mm. like other stuff, because it's a practice and sitting at home for me in protest of not being paid would have absolutely lessened my skill set because I'm not interacting. I'm not playing around. I'm not growing as an actor. If I'm in protest in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair. It does. It does. Um, 
because I've, I've had that conversation with multiple artists and it's the responses are always varying but sure. then it's rarely that'll come across an artist that'll say i'll never do free work and every now and then i'll, I'll do come across that but then hearing their story and why they choose not to do free work makes complete sense totally but then it's just like i'll talk to the up-and-coming artist and they're just beside themselves because they know it's about the art and it's about the love for the art and they're like i just need to get paid and i gotta have this joe job and then it's just eating at them and, and it's unfortunate um but i think i would argue and i think certainly i know my drawbacks as an actor and i i have to um const it is a practice for me but for others it's not some yeah. people are just magnetic always and immediately with no um no nurturing of that practice um i am not and most of the up and comers that i come across are not either <laughs> <laughs> and so i think to if it wasn't like it would be like to me it would be like if i was a personal trainer and then i was like well i'm not gonna work out until i'm paid mm. you would then become flabby and now you're you're not up to you're not up to date with the latest personal training trends or you're not in practice of it and mm. it's now um you're not as sharp as you need to be yeah yeah I, I, my analogy that I use is more like a, a mental mindset of you get paid for the work, but then people associate the work as being on set where I associate the work with auditions. You don't get paid for auditions. 100%. And so it's like, you have to be about the work and yeah. that work is unpaid. Yeah. And so because I find, I don't know how you feel, but when I find I'm on set, um, the job is so much easier yeah. because you have the writer, you have the director, you can ask questions, but then when you're yeah. doing your auditions, you have nobody really to ask questions. This is your time to do the work and make the choice. It's up to you. That's your work It is just to make the choice. Especially now with this like entirely self-tape culture. Mm. Like I have my, recently I've been writing with my tapes just being like, if they have like a note, like when we used to go in the room, like, I don't know, at least half the time the casting director would be like, oh, you got that like wrong. Ruth. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like take it again. But this is, um, sorry, you think you're in a horror movie and this is a Christmas rom-com. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and when, when you're going off the like, you know, seven page hint at what the story is, you're, it's very easy to, you know, not necessarily get the tone, especially some of these really top secret freaking. you're yeah. just kind of playing detective and, um, sorry, that's my, <laughs> that's my audition tangent. But I take your point about the, yeah, auditions are absolutely the work. And the, the reason in my mind, when you're paid handsomely on a show that's your annual income which includes the audition periods in the same yeah. way a company that pitches you know any company that pre creates pitch pitch decks for free yeah. 
then lands the client and then their full year is inclusive of both of those things. I equate the salary to, you know, when you're like watching court dramas or if you've ever been in a court and you witness it and they add on the surplus amount of pain and suffering. That's what I equate to what we get where it's like, it's your annual salary plus the pain and suffering for the last, however many years you were studying this art. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, yeah. So about now your, your theater company, I'm so excited to dive into this um, because what made you want to do it? And I, I have to say like your theater company is incredible with the work that you put out and with the talent that you decide to cast for these productions they're incredible so what made you want to go down that route of making it official and creating the Howland Theater Company yeah so yeah we created the Howland Company in 2014 um and we were just at the time we were not well, my friend and I were not working. <laughs> um, the Howland Company is made up of nine members uh, and we have what we call a collective leadership model. So we don't have an artistic director. Um, we don't have any sort of CEO or anything, but we have um, nine equal voices. And um, when we started, we... My, it started with my friend James and I, and we both just had a love of theater. We did theater in high school together. That's how I met him. And we were tired of um, not working, but also um, feeling very isolated in the early audition process that is an actor's life. You know, you, you go to theater school or you take drama, um, and you know you do a play that's why you want to do this and then you get an agent and then you know unless you book something right away you you spend you know a year just prepping auditions in isolation and coming to um auditions seeing some scary faces you're going up against and some scary producers and then going home it's it can be so isolating at the beginning um, and you really have to build a community. So that we started based around this thing called the reading group, which um, it was a monthly play reading um, group that we just had. There was about 10 of us at the time and we just re read a play monthly. Um, but then we sort of decided to, to form a company. We applied to the Fringe Festival and got in. And so sort of in, in the, in two years we had our first show and this now monthly group the reading group which we have now run for eight years um wow. and really took on like a real new um importance during the pandemic i mean we would we've had we've run them every last monday of the month for eight years and then we had to stop obviously um in March, 2020, but we moved them to Zoom and suddenly like all over again, we were seeing, you know, a huge uptick of participants and just like actors and theater lovers from the community in Toronto. So, so really building that community, that was something I was very proud of, you know, 
almost a decade later that like that community really was built and was there for people during the pandemic. Um, so that's how it started. And then, yeah, we did a play and we got, we won best of fringe from that first show. And then we just, I don't know, we, we, um, we just kept going. The whole thing with the company is that we all come from different places. So there was people from Soul Pepper Theater. I come mostly from film and television, people from, you know, theater in Chicago. Um, then there was like, we had some new Ryerson students, some new, like we just all came from different type backgrounds. And, and so we all bring very different perspectives to our work. And as a result, our plays are very varied. Um, Have you ever put on or mounted a play that you guys wrote yourselves? Yeah, so okay. we, um, well, we've, our most recent production, which happened, well, sorry, no, that was, uh, we had one show close February of 2020, thank God, like right before everything <laughs> shut down. Yeah. Um, and that, that was called Casimir and Caroline. And it was an adaptation of a German play that was written in the 1800s. Um, mm. So that, so we've done translations and adaptations and we're working on another one right now, but they're very much, um, they're very adapted. Like they're very gotcha. um, far from the original script. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd then, love to write yeah, because I just see creativity when I see putting on work and I, that's always one thing that like, I always wonder where it's like, oh, when are, when are they going to do like a, a Ruth Goodwin original? You know what I mean? Where it's just with that, where <laughs> how, like, how this is presumptuous to me, but I think that you you would be in this bubble as well, where it's like, how many scripts do you have that you've written that's just sitting on your desktop? Well, yeah, I would definitely be in this boat. Um, I'm trying to make a TV show right now. Hmm. Um, trying being the operative word, but um, I have really always um, wanted to be a showrunner in my like long-term career goals. And so I have, um, I have a bunch of pilots and I really like spent a lot of time trying to like learn the pilot format and uh, especially like the half hour comedy pilot format, which is very um, specific. And, you know, you really need to know the rules to be able to like improvise around the rules and, you know, um, know them to break them, I guess. Um, but it's so funny because then during the pandemic, I was like mourning the loss of theater, like so much, like as soon as we couldn't do it, I was like gutted. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to take a playwriting class. I'm just going to write a play. And I would have written probably five pilots. Um, and for the life of me, I could not write a play. I couldn't write a play. I don't know why. And like in my head, I was like, when you write a TV pilot, you just send it to networks and producers and, you know, people that it just goes into an ether. Mm. Whereas like, if I were to, what I have to move beyond, but like to write a play, I would know that it would, um, it would 
play with the Helen Company. Um, and they would read it and either immediately reject it, all my friends, <laughs> or it would get past that point and it would make it to production. And then I would like see the audiences right in front of me. It's something that is so, um, it was such a mental block for me, just knowing sure. the theater community in Toronto and knowing who would being able to be like, oh, and this person will come and this person will review it and this person will hate it and this person um, and that I have to, I have to, I don't know, go to therapy and figure out how to process <laughs> that because I really would love to write a play and I have lots of TV scripts I can write, but I just haven't, um, I can't get past that part. That's an interesting block. I've, I've never, I've never encountered that where it's like, it just sounds like you're just scared of the audience. <laughs> well, you know how like sometimes people say like, oh, I could, you know, I could sing or I could perform to like, like 150 people, but it was just like my five friends. I'm like so awkward. Do you know that feeling at all? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feels like that to me. Like I'm like, oh, I could like send, you know, my ego is inflated enough that I could just send this to a production company and think, oh, this should be made. But then like for actually like something like what I would just stand on stage and say my own lines and have people <laughs> look at me and judge me. That's scary. <laughs> that's funny. So you mentioned taking a playwriting class. So yeah. that's a great segue then now for inquiring about your training. Because um, you're, I've seen your work and you're phenomenal in every aspect of it where you bring so much skill to the craft. Um, where did you learn to act? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to be so upset if you said I've never been, I've never trained in my life. <laughs> no, no, I have, I have, I didn't go okay. to school. Um, I went to um, school and got like a general arts degree, which is, I, it was still in drama, but it was more in like theater history than like us actually like acting. So I had to like really train after school, mm -hmm. uh, after, after college. But um, I honestly, I, I had an amazing on-camera teacher, Salvatore Antonio at, um, in Toronto at the Armstrong Actors Studio. So that was a big, um, he really, he was very hard on me and very, um, I won a scholarship to that studio for a year. So it was like a godsend of on-camera acting for a year, but he really, um, I have ADHD and until I worked with him, I had no real sense outside of like, oh, I have, you know, when I was in high school, I had extra time on tests and I had, you know, outside of academically, I knew what ADHD was, but he was like, you have a focusing problem. And when you come to class focused, you are great. And when you and the other 50% of the time, you are so scattered and talking to people and not, and he's like, and this alludes to my thing about the type of actor I know that I am, but he was like, you are not one of those actors that can just like 
be on your phone or talk to somebody next to you and then like be in the moment. Like you are not. (laughs) (laughs) And there are many actors who are, and it's such a superpower. I wish I had, but he was like, you need to like do your mindfulness before you come to class and like get yourself in a focused place if you really want to, um, pursue this. So that was like Mm -hmm. a very, I left that conversation sobbing. (laughs) He was right. And I, I started applying like more of my ADHD, um, you know, um, tips and survival hacks to my craft. So that was part of it. And, and then honestly, I had, when we started the Howling Company, we taught each other how to act. Like we had, we had um, some members who were farther along in their careers and others much farther along than uh, me. And they direct, like they directed me and they were like, what are you doing? Like, that's wrong. Yeah. So no, I think, and then just getting to, and then just grew from there, but I've mostly learned to act from directors and on camera acting teachers. Fair. And we'll be right back after this short message. But in the meantime, don't forget to connect with us on our Instagram at PlayOn2013 and tell us what you think about the show. Do you like mangoes? <laughs> of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit. Illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. Now, back to the show. I think the thing that sets you apart for me in the Toronto acting community is you found a way to really mesh and incorporate drama and comedy. Um, I don't know if it's, it's a skewed perspective, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. But I feel like the Toronto entertainment scene, when it comes to film and TV, comedy and drama are very separate. You have your comedic actors and then you have your dramatic actors. And it's very rare that you'll see a Canadian actor cover both of them. Yeah. So with that, where did like you, where did you envision yourself when you first started acting? Did you think you were going to be into comedy or did you think you were going to be into drama and then what was the process or how did you find out that you were so able and ready to do both? Um, <clears throat> I never thought I would be that into drama. Um, I really wanted to do musicals, to be honest, when I first started out. And then um started going to auditions with all the like Sheridan College, like real musical theater um, achieving kids. I'm so, oh, oh, that's sort of um, 
I sort of stopped pursuing that. And then, but in that sort of musical love, I was like very, comedy was very much a part of that. And um, one of my best friends growing up is a phenomenal improviser, Liz Johnston. And um, she really exposed me to a lot of the comedy bars, comedy scene, like from, from the time that we were like in grade eight and continues to. So that really, um, that part of my life was very, uh, I was, I was always observing of the comedy community and, um, and then I don't know, I, I did a, sh a but Howland again is like, they, I just, they just started putting me in some dramatic roles. And, um, I remember I did the show punk rock where it was a very, very dramatic, um, piece. And I was like, sort of this, um, central character that a lot of chaos happened around and um I was terrified like I was like oh I can only really like mug my face and like I don't really know why I'm in this part <laughs> um but our director was really believed in me and just like really helped me to do less on stage and just like you know live in that truthful moment and I think that was a huge a huge help and um now I, I really like them both and I think they both serve each other very well I don't think in my own personal experience I you know um I've just had a death in my life and it's I think I've laughed I don't think I've laughed harder than I did at some of the stuff that happened um in the memorial service because it, you're just mm. so heightened I don't think there is drama without comedy um, and I don't think there's comedy without drama. So the, the, the more advanced I get in this world, I, I think that they both have a really strong, truthful place in each other. And I, I pause at dramatic performances now that have absolutely no humor in them. Hmm. I don't know how believable I find that. Um, yeah. I have a strong sentiment of a really strong comedic actor can absolutely do a dramatic role justice, but totally. a really strong dramatic actor is going to have a hard time with comedy. What, yeah. what do you, what's your sentiment yeah. with that? Yeah. yeah, I definitely would agree about a comedic actor in drama. Although it's funny, like it is funny how sometimes comedians will go, oh, I'm just a comedian, I'm not an actor. And actors will go, oh, well, I'm just an actor, I'm not a comedian. And how quick we are to um, apologize for if we <laughs> might, we're, to, want to label ourselves. And I mean, we're all storytellers, like we're all mm -hmm. friggin' doing this. Like, um, but yeah, dramatic actors, I think with the right direction though, like, someone that really takes themselves so seriously is just going to be funny. Like if, if yeah. you, if you have the right director behind you, but no, I don't think, I think, I, I don't think a dramatic actor could just jump up in an improv and, and just go for it necessarily as, as easy there. Yeah. Father's on stage. Yeah, no, it's cause it's, I think like, um, it's 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 uh, the comedic timing. I find is 
where dramatic actors struggle where because that was my experience starting off where I was just learning how to get invested in these characters that I was breaking down and, and building a backstory and asking these these pertinent questions to bring out the emotion and I had absolutely zero concept of comedy and timing and repetition and I think that's the big separation where that's life is just allowing yourself to understand your impulses where in drama you're just very in your head and you you you're more ruminating on these questions versus allowing yourself to just feel and to act and to just go so it's it's one thing that I always try to steer beginner actors and when they ask for tips where it's like all right make sure you dive into some improv classes as well as whatever drama you're studying but uh yeah no that's that's always been a an interesting thing so it's like when I see somebody with strong comedic chops and brilliant presence when it comes to those intense dramatic scenes like it's it's definitely something to not just glance over um well thank with, you i appreciate yeah, yeah yeah with your theater company as well and with all the opportunities that you've kind of provided yourself with also the other members in that cast do you ever have a thought of this is going to lead to something. I guess throughout an entire career of acting, like what was that emotion like trying to get over the fact that it's okay that this might not lead to anything, even though you invest everything in it and you hope that, oh, there's going to be a represent a representative or an agent from CAA in the audience tonight, and they're going to definitely, you know, pick one of us up. But then it's like, how did you come across to being okay with, and I don't even know if you are okay with it, and if there's still that little voice inside yeah. you, but like, how did you come across with, the reason why I say that you're okay with it is because you're still here and you're still doing it. So there's a level of okay that I think I can safely say is there. But how did you navigate being okay with thinking something's going to happen and then it doesn't? Oh, um, uh, am I okay with it now? Um, <laughs> I think there's two things. There's two things. I, I really struggle when something doesn't build to anything. I've, I really, maybe I'm opportunistic in that way. I, I really, um, I really struggle with it. Um, and that can be, you know, um, yeah, that doesn't need to be like, you know, I do this show and I end up on a TV show. I do this play and I end up on a TV show or I do this TV show and I end up on a movie or I, you know, it doesn't need to be that, but I, um, but, you know, it, it can be, um, you know, uh, 
this really landed with somebody or this really, or, or somebody saw this and will think of me for some other role. But <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I do struggle with that. How, that being said, um, you know, in the auditioning process, that's, that's a constant. Um, and uh, just sort of inventing these three-dimensional people on 48 hours notice and then putting them on camera in your Sunday best and then not hearing anything is hard. Um, for me, I, um, I just have to pick and choose like what I care the most about. And sometimes that means I let myself really want an audition maybe once or twice a month and to mourn when I don't get it. And that is like, just, you know, by mourn, I mean like, you know, take the hit, feel sad about it, you know, 12 hours later, sleep on it. And then I'm back the next day. Other than like that, um, I just, I couldn't tell you what I auditioned for last week and I did four auditions last week and they were all mm. long <laughs> and I could not tell you what they were today. Like they just mm. go like right out of my head. Um, Cause I just can't, I can't keep them in my head or I will go crazy. Yeah. Um, with that process of letting go of those auditions, <clears throat> Was it always like that for you or what was your journey from being able to, yeah. Cause like it's, it's, I feel like every actor doesn't matter who you are. You're going to experience all the same steps as every actor, every artist that dives into this industry where yeah. you'll need to learn to let go is one big one. Yeah. Um, you'll need to understand that, like I brought up with the previous question where not everything is, is stepping stones and how you mentioned where it's like, you're, it's not play than TV than movie. Like it, it varies and the different levels of rejection where yeah. I broke that down with another friend too, where it's like every actor, no matter how much you prep them, they're all going to face the first time they're cut out of a scene. They're all going to face the first time they're going to get recast they're all going to face the first time their lines get cut and every actor has to go through that process to kind of callous themselves in this industry. So what was that experience like for you being able to understand that, okay, once the audition is done, I need to get it out of my head. Mm. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, <clears throat> I wonder, I wonder what that was. I feel like I've blacked out that period. Like, what, <laughs> what was that? Like, it's I have like, flashes of like. I remember yeah, when, I don't know. Um, I think when I, when I was starting off, like, I remember an audition I, I would have. And I could recite it to you like two months later because of, that's how much 
that's how invested I was. And then there was still also that little voice in my head saying, well, maybe they haven't cast it and I'm still an option. So I still need to know this. And then it was like getting to the point of just realizing that, okay, once they do the audition, once they get all the lines out, that's, and then back to what we were starting off earlier with like, that's the work. I did the work. I don't need to take the work home with me now. And then I started practicing that by throwing out my sides after I left the audition. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people I've heard of that. And I, I heard that and I was like, for a really long time, it was like, I didn't have a printer and it was actually such a pain for me to print my sides. And so I never threw them out because I was like, and I would get these callbacks and I was like, this is like the, what also for anyone that is listening that doesn't do this, what, what heightens this entire process is that it happens in 48 hours. If yeah. we were given a week to prep these auditions, it would be very different, but you get 48 to, you know, 48 hours if you're lucky to turn over these like, like, you know, leading dream roles that you would, any human would want all the time in the world to produce and you get no time. So everything is like so fast, which also allows, it allows me to forget faster, but I never saved my sides because I was like, oh my gosh, to go back to the print shop, if I'm getting called back for this is like an hour out of those 48 hours that I don't have. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but I think what really did it for me, honestly, was being um, more entrepreneurial in other parts of my career. Because um, I just don't have, I have so many irons in the fire at any given time. Like when I, um, when I booked my first major show, um, I was like, I, I didn't have time for it. I had spent like, you know, years waiting to book something um getting very very close for a very very long time which is like a whole other slog and like impossible to keep an income in that period of time because again 48 hours you're being called back for things and you're never making any money um but so I had spent a long time in that period and then I booked this thing and but by the time I booked it I had shows lined up that I was producing I had um like through to the end of the year. So I ended up, um, you know, and that was a really big lesson for me just in terms of like, A, like I was working all the time. So my acting was better objectively. Like it just, it was constantly being, the tool was constantly being exercised. And then, um, and then it didn't mean so much to me at that point because I had my own things going on. And I'm in a bit of that phase again right now. I'm, I'm getting inundated with a lot of things, which are great, but I have a lot of things of my own that are keeping me going. So it just, it creates a more holistic um, experience for me than just waiting for the phone to ring, which when I have had to do that, like during the lockdown, I mean, it's just, painful and you're so it adds a desperation to your um to your work that to my work at least that is just doesn't serve in any way that makes sense 
Yeah. No, totally. I think totally. I just know I have to forget these things. Fair. Um, yeah. One thing, too, that I want to explore is whenever an artist gets so busy um and especially when it's like in the early parts of their career and and they have a lot going on and there tends to be a moment that they kind of lose themselves in all of that work then with that it ultimately leads to some kind of crash in the form of depression and I'm curious if you're willing to share what was those low times like and how did you get out of them? Yeah, I've definitely, I mean, burnout is something I have like very much, I sort of thought was a myth until I experienced it. And just like burnout by sort of definition being like, you know, the things that once brought you joy, like you can't, you get no joy from, like you're just exhausted all the time. And I would say like some of the like um, highest points of my career on paper in that I'm the most booked and I'm working on things that I love. I have also um, been totally burnt out and out of ideas to bring to set and out of out of um, energy to, you know, explore anything and, um, and very anxious. And, and if you don't have your mental health in a good place, I think a set, a set is like a very hierarchical uh, ecosystem with a high likelihood of toxicity (laughs) just in terms of like how much money is being spent per minute and how high stakes everyone's job is and how or they feel their job is and how how worried everyone is about your mental health in a good spot when you get there for me I can just absorb all of that like from the minute I step in hair and makeup if there's like on the walkies or complaints between just in the trailers already I'm like oh my god I'm taking on everyone's frustration which is making it harder for me to do my job which is like to be a secretary in the 1950s and not (laughs) not sitting in this trailer in 2021 (laughs) like so it's uh So for me, mindfulness, um, yoga, like all that sort of um, prep, mental health prep stuff. I try not to drink too much in the weeks leading up to like a big gig or, you know, just try to not, you know, not that I drink, not that I'm a lush, but I just try to, you know, be in a healthier place internally and externally to um to get through those periods yeah 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 um what's something then you would advise 
up and coming artists into this craft then to help them, I guess, I don't want to use the word slow down because I feel like when we first dive into this industry, we have that concept and understanding of we got to go full throttle um, and hope for the best. But the reality is there has to be some kind of slow burn as well. So in terms of, I guess, a rest and relaxation reset period, what's some advice that you would give somebody starting into this industry? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard. I think often about this because what would I tell my younger self like to work not as hard? Like I wouldn't have had this success that I had done, <laughs> which yeah. is terrible, but yeah. I, you know, we have to be mindful of our mental health. We also have to <clears throat> go after what we want in a, in a responsible way. But sometimes, you know, when you're younger and you have more energy and you don't have kids and you don't have, you know, maybe a spouse and you, you know, things are only going to get, it's only going to be harder for you as you get older to really grind. So when you're starting out, like if you, if you really want it, it's going to be a grind when you get to the professional level. So start grinding before that. So you're ready because, um, unless the industry makes some leaps and bound changes, which it should, but it's not anytime soon. Um, I think work hard and, um, and, and develop a mindfulness practice and be self-aware and don't, you know, work smart. Like you have to, you know, looking, memorizing lines over and over and over and over again for an audition tomorrow is not necessarily the work you need to be doing. Um, you know, if, if you don't know who, what, where, when, why of this character and who you're talking to and the stakes and where, are you on the moon? Are you in a, are you in a, you know, are you in the middle of a high stakes surgery or are you at a coffee shop? Like if you can't answer those questions, Funny that you, um, you, know, you ask those questions, like that, but, but it's like all those three things could be the scenario. You're in a coffee shop doing a high-stakes surgery you know, on the moon. <laughs> no, literally. And, and sometimes I do. I find that younger, some younger actors can kind of miss those points and kind of busy syndrome themselves with, you know, just memorizing lines. You have to, you have to really learn what works for you to truthfully tell a story and then, you know, repeat that and, and really hone that. Um, and only you can really answer that. Um, but, you know, it will, when you are smarter about your work, it comes easier and it doesn't like, I used to just memorize, memorize, and then freak out for an audition. And everyone in my life would suffer. Like my partner, my parents, like I would be so anxious mm. until I learned how to actually have a practice of, you know, all of acting. Yeah. Um, 
which includes some mindfulness, some yoga, some like very meticulous prep, some internal exploration, then, you know, some practical learning of the lines. Like that's, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I just went on slightly. Um, <laughs> yeah, but having, having your own practice and making things easier. But then as well as like, how do you, or what's your advice for the rest period? And, and stepping away oh, from, right. yeah. 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 You have to, you have to have a rest period. I think, um, you also need to have things that you do that aren't related to this industry. Um, mm. you know, you need to have hobbies. You, you need to have, I, when I was starting out, I didn't, really feel I had the luxury of like clocking out or going away or really like resting both because I didn't have the money to go away but I also didn't have um like it, it felt to me like I was always on call to audition but within that um you know I have hobbies I have you know things that I like to do that turn my brain off um and to me that was the rest period at the beginning other people taking a good month or two away would probably be good but you when you're starting out you don't know what you're gonna miss my worry i'm an anxious yeah. actor so no that's fair that's that's like i think i think you still hit it on the head where everybody kind of needs to throw out their own process and what their rest period itself looks like. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's such a fickle industry where pretty much my, my, my hope with this podcast and people that do decide to tune in and listen is that they get that message of these are the things that you're going to face. So just get ready for it. Like, as you mentioned, where it's yeah. like the burnout, a lot of people, I remember when I was starting off too, where they didn't believe in burnout. I didn't believe in burnout, especially. And I experienced my first burnout that like completely changed my life is like after a 17 hour day of working, I fell asleep at the wheel driving home. And so I was like, that was like one of the, oh, I'm not yeah. Superman. I do need rest. And it's one of those unfortunate things where it's like, you have to learn it the hard way. Just like, as I mentioned, where it's yeah. like, it's one of the things that if you're going to experience when your first scene gets cut and it's like, I think the reason yeah. why that hurts so many actors at like the early stages is because they're so excited about that scene. And then they reach out to everybody to tell everybody like, Hey, tune in, tune in. And then when you don't show up, it's more of like a real ego punch. But yeah, rest and relaxation and think, is. Oh, yeah. And, and just like, I guess what I'm sort of getting at is just building a stamina and being able to recognize when you're in one phase or another phase. Because sometimes, you know, in, when you're not working, you're auditioning, 
you're building a stamina for that. And mm. that really, in my experience, doesn't allow you a vacation um, mm. because you can go away, but you can still be self-taped when you're away. And then you're not really away. You're still yeah. in it. Um, yeah. But then when you're on set and you're working on something, you know, a lot of actors will make the mistake of continuing to audition for major things when they're in when they're in a key position on a lead thing. And I don't know, I don't know if that's a mistake, but some people, you know, you have at that point, you know yourself, can you do it or can you not do it? And if you can't do it, well, don't jeopardize the job you're on. Hmm. Yeah, right? no, that's, that's definitely a, right? a really crucial to... lesson. And then, you know, if you get a great job, then yeah, you can afford a vacation. And you know, your stamina might be a little bit less because the hours are insane, but you'll get a break at the end of it. But yeah, Fair. that's my... <laughs> no, that definitely makes so much sense. <laughs> um, but Ruth, no thank you so much for, for your time and, and your expertise on everything. Um, but before I do let you go, I do have one aching question that I've was burning to ask you just because you have your own theater company and I think that you would have the answer to this. So hopefully you do, but Cirque du Soleil and wrestling like WWE wrestling. Yeah. Are those equity? This is a good question. I bet you Cirque du Soleil is. I thought there was like something about wrestling that was, um, I thought there was some exposing of, now, ugh, forgive me, like wrestling, that's like the more theatrical one, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. boxing, which is like an sport. And no, like not, not boxing or UFC. I'm talking like wrestling, WWF, where there'd be moments that they'd have a microphone yeah. and they'd be sticking to a script and yeah, that. Yeah. Like I see that, and they and they're getting no. paid handsomely. Yes, but I thought there was something that I actually heard about, which was that WWF wrestling, at least until very recently, but if not still, that they are the closest to the old Hollywood studio system in that, like, they own your likeness and they just contract you over and over again for different i don't know fights interesting shows yeah because i think that's something the wrestlers talk a lot about is like i don't even own my name yeah but maybe i'm making this up i no, that's I've that's true that but like but Cirque du Soleil i think is so with that though it's like you have for example, there was a big debacle with the Power Rangers where they weren't getting paid um, their royalties for their merchandise because when their merchandise was being sold, it was being sold with the helmet. So you, it didn't have your likeness. It was the likeness of the studio. But the Power Rangers were still union. They were, they were you know, SAG-AFTRA. So it's like when, whenever I watch wrestling and I think of wrestling, I'm like, are they equity? Are they part of the union? Because this is still technically a staged performance. Yeah, and it's filmed too. But I feel like they're not. I 
feel like I've heard that they are not <laughs> best treated, but I'm not sure. I feel like I said that in the news hmm. and maybe I'm wrong. So don't quote me on that. Ah, but I'm sure I, I was, ho- I was hoping you would have the answers for me on this. Hmm. I know. I wish I did too. <laughs> that's a good, that's a Google though, for sure. But there's something about the televised component of it. Like there's no way equity represents them, no. Maybe, hmm. maybe, um, SAG. SAG, maybe. maybe. Interesting. So then now with that, like my follow-up question is like, what then is the hierarchy? Like how you explain where it was like, get into a movie or get into plays and then TVs and then movies. Where it's like, where does wrestling fall into that? Because those, they're artists, yeah. I'll call them artists, those wrestlers, they're getting paid way more than a lot of, you know, people in theater. And it's just like, where? So does that mean they're higher? Is that is that why The Rock and, you know, other wrestlers transition into the film industry? And it's just been a, a dying question. Well, that they're making more than people in theater because there's millions of people watching them because they're televised. That's why they're making more than people in theater. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a hierarchy even within the wrestlers. Like some are newer and yeah. get paid way less. And I do think now I'm just like an expert on something I know nothing about but (laughs) I think I feel like I read an article about this or something but I think like when you consider what they have to do to their bodies they are actually not as handsomely paid as um Mm. like what they're doing to their bodies is more akin to football players and they're certainly not as well paid as football players but I think that that is part of it. Wow. Suddenly I'm, <laughs> suddenly I'm starting a protest for the wrestlers. <laughs> Equality and equity for wrestlers. No, I'm with it. I'll march to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> for me, I'm just a big advocate for mental health and like the documentaries and especially the things that hit the news where wrestlers have to deal with like their mental health is is very poorly treated and it's it's sad and i definitely hope that ah. attention gets gets sent that way but again ruth thank you so much for your time and you are amazing and i cannot wait to see another howl and company play because you guys just absolutely rock whatever stage you guys touch so congratulations again with that well thank you so much <laughs> and this was great to talk to you. Likewise, likewise. But everybody, thank you all for tuning in to the Two Degrees podcast brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Ruth Goodwin, check her out. Check out her works. Follow her on Instagram and see what she's up to. But if you ever get a chance and you are in Toronto and there is a play happening, do check it out. And I guarantee you, you are going to be thoroughly entertained. But other than that, everybody, thank you for tuning in and magingat kayo. Thank you all for tuning in. Artwork by Monique Lizardo. Music by Cade Cole. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, share, tag us. Whatever all the fun things people do when they like something. 
But most importantly, check out www.letsplayon.org for the Play On Foundation and lend your voice in bringing awareness to the neurological research for brain aneurysm detection and prevention. My name's Javi. See you next time on the Two Degrees Podcast.